This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Featuring newsmakers, opinion leaders, and authors. Season 11, Episode 19. Single in America. Talking with Harry Bruinius, New York Bureau Chief, the Christian Science Monitor. Harry joins us today from his office in New York. Hi, Harry. How are you? And welcome to the show. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for inviting me. Really looking forward to our conversation. Harry, could you just take a moment and share with our listeners your professional background in addition to being bureau chief for the Christian Science Monitor? Well, I've had sort of a peripatetic career. I have been writing for the Christian Science Monitor for about 22 years. Mm -hmm. But living in New York, I've also owned an art gallery and writer's workshop in Manhattan. I cover the intersections of religion and politics, and I teach uh, journalism and religion at Hunter College in New York. I've also, you know, written a book on the history of eugenics in the United States. And, uh, but in general, as the Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor, again, I cover the uh, intersection of religion and politics, various cultural issues, including LGBTQ issues and criminal justice issues as well, kind of take up a lot of my time. A, a very rich background and one that will inform our conversation. And Harry, in a recent article that you wrote for the Christian Science Monitor, you stated that four out of 10 adults between the ages of 25 and 54 were neither married nor living with a partner. That's a 30% increase since 1990, according to a recent Pew Research Center study. What other trends have you noticed and did your research reveal? It's actually a very, very complicated landscape, I think. And, you know, this emergence of singles and you know, they call themselves solos a lot is diverse and complicated and includes a, a variety of different types of people, not all of them who prefer to be single. One of the, another figure that really caught my mind was the rise in single person households, about 30% of the country now are, you know, if about half of the country are, of the adult population are single, the number of households is, is rising to almost 30% of, mm. of, of total household share. So, and, you know, and among these are a growing number of people that are embracing a solo lifestyle and feeling that's the way they want to, you know, express their, their lives, their sexuality, you know, their civic responsibilities and living alone. And, and, you know, we'll talk about what, what that means for the country as well. Now, there was a time when we thought that living alone, and in fact, when you said living alone, it, it sort of took me back to, to the old days when uh, living alone was something uh, something sad and something that that people would sympathize with. But what you're saying is our culture has changed so much in the last 30, 40 years, that that's no longer the case. One of my sources, too, said, you know, never in the history of our species, you know, has any society gained such a growing number of people who live alone and outside of either traditional marriage or, or partnerships. So it seems to be a very significant moment, 
you know, we're evolving, not just in the United States, but in Western Europe and as well. In some Scandinavian countries, people living alone, especially in cities, is, is, is reaching even higher levels than what we're seeing in the United States. Those under-the-radar trends, and as you said earlier, there's been a, you know, a, a kind of a social bias or social expectation that eventually full-functioning adults will couple up, cohabitate together, get married, start a family, and, uh, you know, our, our legal traditions, our cultural traditions have in many ways been built around the institution of marriage. The rise of the women's movement in the 1950s and 60s and beyond, and of course, the increase in women's educational attainments, professional attainments, has had a lot to do with the independence of women and the fact that not being married can be a valid choice, whereas perhaps 50 or 60 years ago, that wasn't an attractive option. So do you think that the, the, the rise of feminism, the rise of female educational and professional attainment has had a, a lot to do with, with this? All of my academic sources said unequivocally that one of the biggest drivers of the rise of solos has been the rising independence of women over the last few decades. But on the other hand, 30, 40 years ago, the majority of singles were women. That's not true anymore. Now men, there are more single men than women, in some ways hearkening back to time when Americans moved west and most single individuals were men going west to to work in either the oil industry or, or, or things in Montana and Nevada. So, you know, over the last couple decades, that's changed profoundly. As I said, you know, on the one hand, more men are single today for different kinds of reasons. But on the other hand, people are embracing single lifestyles, you know, again, some of my sources said, because more and more women are are choosing to, to live singly. And, and again, I want to emphasize that's, you know, one part of a very complicated landscape of, of why so many singles, why the number of singles in the United States has been rising. In your article in the Christian Science Monitor the other day, you cited a young woman living in Park City, Utah. And she, yeah. had, she had moved out to Park City after 9-11, a New Yorker. She had moved out and she was she thought she was going to be doing a three-month stint in Park City. And here, 20 years later, she's still in Park City and very happily solo. Could you share with us that example of this young lady? Yeah. You know, she was a fellow New Yorker living in the East Village, you know, when she was a young woman just starting out in public relations. She, she now runs her own public relations firm in Park City. But, you know, she was like many young adults living in the city. You know, she had a very active social life. You know, you have a small, tiny apartment uh, in the East Village and it's just a different kind of lifestyle. And then, you know, she went to do some work with the uh, Sundance Film Festival, thinking it would just be three months. But, you know, it was after 9-11 and she decided she loved it there. She had been an avid skier and she ended up staying. But she also said that, you know, even though there were far more men at the time in Park City uh, than women, you know, they were mainly 
men that were involved in the ski industry, some of the tourism, and just they weren't the kind of men that she was attracted to. And she even said, you know, it was sort of happenstance that now she's in her mid-40s that she ended up alone on the one hand. But on the other hand, she also felt like, you know what, this is this is who I was. I never wanted to have traditional wedding or she never wanted to have children. And she found that actually living solo was fit the kind of person that she was all along. And she was one, and this is kind of the complicated landscape. It isn't like people who are living alone today are thinking that they'll never get married or they'll never live with someone or they'll never fall in love. They just want to be a single person and their entire lives. She wasn't like that. She she thinks, you know, I've lived this way and I like it and I'm comfortable with it. And maybe someday I'll get married. Thank you very much. I'm perfectly happy <laughs> living by myself. And, you know, there's some of the literature out there hand but you know one you know people riffing on the old cliches about being a spinster and sort of mocking that old paradigm especially if you're a single woman you know in your 40s or later like i said it's an interesting it's an interesting landscape as it's starting to become more visible and starting to emerge in uh in a new way and people are paying attention In your article, you also mentioned the important impact that the LGBTQ community has had on growing acceptance of being single and creating alternate social, certainly for our LGBTQ friends and neighbors here in San Francisco. My LGBTQ friends seem to have a lot more invitations for Christmas parties and dinners and uh, what have you than than we get. So could you share with us the alternate path and the embracing of single life, which the LGBTQ community has given us, which of course was forced on them because they were not able to legally marry until 2015 with the Oberfell decision. But uh, could you share that, that example with us? I think it's fair to say, and in some ways, these are my own observations from my research for the story, piecing together different things that various people have said. But, you know, with the emergence of LGBTQ people, you know, over the last 20 years, it, it in many ways provided a paradigm for people who prefer to live single. And I've seen, you know, some of the scholars are even bracing the the rhetoric of thinking about singleism and the kind of the social prejudice, various slights that happen for single adults in a coupled world. So in some ways, you know, the LGBT community and the paradigm of coming out and, you know, kind of asserting their lifestyles that, that they choose have, you know, have kind of provided this paradigm for for heterosexual couples that are living singly, I found. And the data now coming out shows that, indeed, you know, people who live single are more likely to be involved in civic projects, Mm -hmm. are more likely to care for family members, are more likely to have, you know, kind of social lives that are robust and engaged in ways that, you know, people who are married or coupled or in families that in an era where, you know, most of your time is spent with your jobs and your family 
leaving less time, I think, for this kind of civic engagement that you sort of described LGBT community in, in San Francisco. It's, it's interesting, Justice Kennedy in the Oberfell decision made reference to the, the loneliness of the single life and that marriage, of course, implying that marriage was not a lonely state to be in. Justice Kennedy was in his was close to eighty when he wrote that, so of a very different generation, and probably and with a very different view of singlehood and being married. Any thoughts about that? I mean, as that as that generation, our parents' generation, slips away, I guess there is even more embracing and acceptance of the single life. One of the scholars that I talked to was really hurt by that quote and and some of the lofty rhetoric about marriage that Justice Kennedy used in the Obergefell decision, you know, particularly the one that where he says what marriage responds to the loneliness of an individual who may, you know, look, you know, for someone to hold and find no one there. I, I, you know, I did, I talked to a number of, of solos that saw that as a prime instance of, of singleism, sort of uh, seeing singles as outside of this human norm in a similar way that LGBTQ people were excluded or seen as outside of the norm of, uh, of even what was seen as, uh, you know, a, a divine paradigm, being outside of that. One example, I think, of, you know, singles kind of, ta- you know, asserting themselves to fight against what e- I've even heard them use terms microaggressions. If you're, if you're a single your couple's friends demote you to lunch or, you know, not on the weekend <laughs> yes. or, uh, you know, or, or even, you know, you get the bad shifts at work because employers believe, oh, you've got time. So, you know, so on all of these, uh, you know, when people want to be home with their families, oh, our single employees can take up the slack since they don't have those responsibilities. And, and you can also see data that shows, you know, married individuals, even on the same levels, you know, are paid more than, than singles. So, so there's all these kind of social, these structural issues that make it more difficult to be single, you know, as long as some of the, as well as some of the natural structural issues that, uh, you know, it's easier to have a household with two sources of income. But yeah, I think when you're, when you, when you're single, you start to realize how much it's a couple's world in many ways, including restaurants that don't make reservations for a single person to a more, but of course there's economic reasons for that as well. Not necessarily an instance of, uh, of, of, of singleism per se. Let's, let's come back to that singleism concept that you just mentioned of uh, singles not being paid as much as, uh, as married people. Is, is that, yeah. that, 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 is that a thing? Is that uh, that the fact? Yes. I, I think the, you know, the research of Bella DiPaolo, who wrote a, uh, an interesting book title again, I don't have it in front, in front of me. She goes through, she claims that there's over uh, um, a thousand laws that benefit singles. I mean, that benefit married couples over singles. Uh, 
that's including like social security benefits. Mm-hmm. Spouse will, you know, be able to get the their their partner's social security benefits or the higher, you know, whichever one of the two was higher. Um, you qualify for single people don't. LGBTQ people no visitation rights uh, with with loved ones, hospitals, and and various sorts of things that if you're not legally coupled to another person, you don't have those benefits. But I was surprised as well that you can see data that unequal when there's sort of a, there's a gap between employment positions that those who those who are married and have families have higher salaries than those who don't because there again there's this almost cultural expectation if you're single you're sort of young and aggressive perhaps and and will work harder and more hours and and in those slots that married people with families may prefer not to have well that's uh, now is is that more the case in the private sector than the public sector i i would imagine that th- I, that seems to be blatantly discriminatory from from my perspective yeah i don't know if i have not seen breakdowns between private and public sectors with this data you know it, it again it was the sort of data that uh, the scholar bent sort of her life parsing and going through. And it's interesting. Is there a singles political caucus, for instance, in the in the large, uh, in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party? Is singleism, is being single, is that a an issue? Is that a movement? Is there a push? Obviously, many of those, many of those discriminatory practices, particularly for the LGBTQ community, have gone away as a result of marriage equality, right? You know, another scholar, Peter McGraw, who's done a lot of work like this and considers himself an advocate for singles. I think what's starting to emerge right now are, are kind of social groups. And he runs a salon out of Denver right now, in you know, which starts to invite uh, singles to discuss and talk about these very issues, including you know some of this data about general trend of being paid less and uh, a general trend to having more, more expectations to you know to fill the the slots that aren't necessarily the ones that people want. Professor DePaulo too said, you know. Uh, just maybe five, six years ago, she felt like she was alone when she would, you know, intervene either on discussion boards or calling into shows and kind of point out some of this singlest, you know, prejudice that's out there. But she said, you know, recently more people are paying attention, more people are starting to galvanize about these issues. And, And so while I think there has not been a significant emergence of a political movement about this, I think it's starting to bubble up in in various ways, like these salons, like the the, the work and these books that are being written. A lot of it is is relatively recent. Again, another scholar that I said said that this is an unprecedented in human history to have a society with this number of people who live alone or who live singly, or who aren't starting families. It's interesting that this particular singlist movement, which of course, as we said earlier, in the LGBTQ community, many of those issues 
have been addressed as a result of marriage equality, but in the broader non-LGBTQ community, and of course the the broader non-LGBTQ community has also benefited from political activism, the social activism of the LGBTQ community in asserting these additional rights. Are are there any other are there any other thoughts that you have from either Professor DeBello or from Graw who are you know, to shed light on this issue of singleism? Well I don't know if I if I should take this opportunity to pivot on some of the negative aspects about the rise in singles, particularly among working class men and people who would rather not be single, but are, you know, are single for a variety of different reasons, socioeconomic, as well as the kind of culture that is emerging in the digital age, which is another, you know, driver of people going solo. But at the same time, there's a lot more choices. People can connect online. People are holding out more. Millennials are waiting to get married and start families into their 30s. There are sectors of this growing trend of singles that uh, are troubling, Peter McGraw told me, especially how working class, lower educated men that are involuntarily single, that again, could hearken some larger you know, social problems afoot, as it were. To the extent that with the emancipation of women and higher education levels for women, the need for a lot of women can simply make the decision not to be married. So as a result, I guess the available pool of single women to to marry has shrunk. And, you know, some of these men that you're talking about, as a result, have less opportunity to get married. And, and I guess that's emphasized by the digital culture that we live in today. Yes. And, you know, my first one of the characters in my story, you know, the one who left New York and and went to Park City, Utah, she didn't particularly like what she had to choose from, you know, when she was in in her 20s and 30s. And so she she never settled down, even though she never planned to live a life that was single. There's also the data in that Pew study that you mentioned at the beginning. People who are single do overall lag in a range of outcomes, employment levels, median earnings, people who live at home, you know, so so all of this is part of the landscape as well, you know, and parsing these out, parsing out the reasons for these lagging outcomes, even, even women who are married and have their own careers tend to make more money than comparable women who are not married. Again, I, I think a lot of the scholars are trying to, and, and sociologists are probing into these differences and wondering, is there a causal relationship or is this a correlation that comes out for, for different reasons? You know, for example, in some ways, four out of 10 marriages end up in divorce yes. today. <clears throat> and, you know, when you're looking at the better outcomes for people who stay partnered, people who stay married, that generally gives you an advantage economically um, in a single household than, than others. You know, so is it, what are the reasons for this kind of data and how correlated in a causal way are they related? And you know, there's been a, a robust debate about that in a previous generation 
20, 30 years ago, in some ways, singles were foils to just look at the benefits of marriage, the social benefits of marriage. That data is there. I think uh, today, scholars like uh, Peter McGraw and Bella DiPaolo are taking a closer look at this and finding, you know, are, are, are finding that these are correlations and not causes for this as well. And some of these differences they attribute to some of the, you know, the, the fact that our societies have evolved to some support and promote married people with families. Well, Harry, in the remaining few minutes of our podcast, are there any additional thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Because it sounds as though, based on the data which the the Pew Research Center has given us, and that also that McGraw and DePaulo are generating, it sounds as though we're we're in the early days of identifying some of these issues with being single, both on the positive side and on the negative side. It sounds like early days. Where do we go from here? What I really found interesting in in all of the people that I talked to, and you know, I, I talked to more single people than uh, appeared in, in the story, so many people had this, uh, this sense of relief and almost a giddy sense of excitement just to realize that there was this movement out there. Uh-huh. And to see people talking about the slights that they felt, kind of the little, again, to use the language of, of microaggressions, you know, kind of the little things that, that people have always felt, e- even divorced people that facing the prospects of being single. Um, and one of my, uh, w- one of the characters in my story was one of these, kind of had a, a very devastating divorce, still good friends with his wife and, you know, had a 10-year-old daughter that they were starting to co-parent, but in his own existential relationship with himself, as it were, he was scared and depressed and had no idea of what his life was going to be like. And and he told me, you know, the first thing I thought after my divorce is like, how am I going to find another wife? And when he, and he, he kind of, uh, discovered the work and the salons of Peter McGraw and he was so excited to to hear about this and in fact when when Peter McGraw started his salon he immediately in in the first thing in Denver he lived in on the other side of the state he drove 5 hours to go to this two and a half hour salon <laughs> in Denver uh-huh. um and you know when he talks about it he's like he's like wow I just didn't realize all of the possibilities now that are open to me as a single person and what, and it was, he, he was, again, he was almost giddy having discovered a community that in some ways he was discovering himself. And I, I thought that was interesting. And it was one that a lot of the people that I interviewed, it was a theme, you know, it was a theme of self-discovery. It's like, I don't have to be in a couple to be happy uh-huh. and fulfilled and uh, and again almost feeling that in in fact my you know having a social life and a a meaningful social life being single they were more able to pursue things that they had always wanted to do and were quite happy as a result so again a, a couple of divorced adults 
that I had seen that that were really excited about the prospects of being solo. Well, Harry, in closing, is this subject singleism? Is this going to be a subject that you'll be fo- that you'll be covering in future articles for the Christian Science Monitor? You know, I, this was one of those stories that surprised me. You know, I learned new things, and it also seemed to be, you know, kind of a, a significant social phenomenon that has gone under the radar in many mm-hmm. ways, and that, that that also is kind of kind of reshape our, our civic and cultural landscapes in, in ways that, that people are just starting to see. So I, so um, to answer your question, um, yes, this is something now that, you know, I, I'm connected to in a way and I'll definitely be, be watching. Um, well, Harry, thank you so much for taking the time and having the interest to write this article, to bring this issue to the fore. And most importantly, thank you for joining us today to discuss being single in America. Jim, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for for inviting me. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, to subscribe. Just click on the subscribe button. All future episodes will come automatically to your inbox. You can also listen to the 223 past shows by clicking on the episode tab, which breaks down the episodes into 12 different subjects. Also, please go to Spotify.com, the podcast tab, and leave a quick review of the podcast. It's easy to do so. This has been your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.